Now, we're going to be studying the book of prophecy that's called the book of Daniel. It's one of the two major books of prophecy in the scripture. It's the most prominent one in the Old Testament. The other one is the book of Revelation, which we've done before, uh, which is in the New Testament. Now, before we launch right into the whole issue of the book of Daniel, I thought that I would take about three weeks, maybe three or four weeks, and kind of give you an introduction to the whole issue of prophecy. Now, you say, George, why do you need to do that? Because I'm pretty sure what I believe. Well, you may know what you believe, but there might be somebody here who has no clue whatsoever what we're going to be talking about. And so some of this is going to be new to you. And especially today, because I was noticing, you know, when I've, I've been in ministry 20 plus years, and when I was in school back in 1987 through, through the early 90s in seminary and so forth, you know, most of the guys you listened to on the radio had a predominant viewpoint concerning eschatology. So they would be primarily someone who would believe in a, a pre-tribulational rapture and a premillennial view of the return of Christ. That's not true anymore. When you listen on the radio, primarily most of them are premillennial. What do I mean by that? They believe that Jesus will come back and then establish a thousand-year reign and, and so forth. But what you'll hear is, is that you'll hear differing opinions on the issue of the rapture. So we're going to, so, and, and, and they're all good guys. Do you, do you understand? I listen to a lot of them myself. But you'll listen, you need to understand what are they talking about, where are you at, and you need to develop your viewpoint on that. Okay? So for instance, we believe here at the church, it's in our doctrinal statement that we have as a church, that we believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ as he sets up a 2,000 year, I mean a 1,000 year reign. That's a premillennial position. What is not in our doctrinal statement is a definitive definition of when the rapture is. Okay? And that's okay. Because you might be here, and although we are primarily pre-tribulational here, and we'll talk about what that means later, you might be here and you have a different viewpoint on that. That's okay. All right? The main issue is, is when you believe whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ will return bodily and set up a thousand-year reign. That's the big issue, okay? And I'll tell you why as we get going into our study over these next few weeks. So if you have your study books, you can turn. At, at the first part of your study books is basically an outline of the entire book of Daniel. You just, you just One of the things you need to understand is, is that most of us, when we read our scripture, we're just picking verses out, trying to find an application for us. But there was a purpose in which the book was written, and there's a flow to the book. And so the first, page one and page two, is kind of an outline of the book of Daniel to kind of help you to understand the flow of it. But go to the next page after that uh, outline, and you'll see the lesson we're going to do today, which is understanding prophecy. So, let's talk first of all about the nature of prophecy. What is it? First thing I want you to notice is this. Biblical prophecy is not a prediction. Immediately, some of you are going to be, what? I thought it was. I thought this was a prediction of what is going to happen in the future. Well, I'm going to delineate it for you a little bit here. 
Biblical prophecy is not a prediction. Let me explain to you what a prediction is. Okay? A prediction is an assumption of what is going to happen in the future based upon some sort of facts whereby you can tell what the future is going to be. All right? So, for instance, we deal with it every day when you listen to the weatherman, okay, or you look at your weather app on your smartphone, all right, or you listen to the radio and they give you the report at whatever part of the hour of what the weather is going to be. And usually, you know, the weatherman will come on there and he'll say, well, it's going to be a 40% chance of rain today. Well, yeah, it might be where you're at, you know, or it might be, you know, 10% chance of rain, and you're out there, we're going to have our picnic today, and then all of a sudden a big cloudburst happens in your area where you're having your picnic, and it's raining. And so what happens is, is that does the predictions that the weatherman make, are they always true? In fact, we have become conditioned, okay, you're conditioned to just assume that with a prediction, it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. It's kind of like a stab at what's going to happen in the future. What happens, though, is, is that our conditioning on our everyday life sometimes is transferred over into our thinking concerning the Bible. And so when we talk about prophecy, biblical prophecy, it is not a prediction. Biblical prophecy is not a prediction. What is it then? Biblical prophecy is a proclamation of what God is going to do. It's not a prediction. It's a statement of fact. If you want to write that down, you can. Prophecy is a statement of fact of what's going to happen in the future. So when, when, when a prophecy is given in the scripture, it's not contingent, okay, upon any other factors other than God for it to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it's, it's, it's supposed to be what's going to take place in the future. You can't... Here's the thing. No human being can change the outcome of a prophecy. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't change anything as far as what's going to happen, as far as God proclaiming it. It's a proclamation of His truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? So let me just stop for a minute, help you understand, because you might be saying, wow, well, that means it's pretty serious. Well, yeah, think about how serious it is. Think about it in the Old Testament. Anybody here can tell me what the penalty was in the Old Testament for a false prophet? Someone who made a false prophecy. Yeah, it was death. He was to be stoned. Why that serious? Well, if a guy got up and made a prophecy saying, thus says the Lord, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, the ref- it, is a, it, is, it is a bad reflection on who? The guy who said it? Not necessarily. Might, you might look at him and say he's a nut. Okay, It's a bad reflection ultimately on who? God. That's why God takes it so serious. Because when we talk about prophecy, it's a statement of fact of what is going to happen in the Bible. What it says is going to happen at some point. What he's going to do. 
So we're not talking about a predictions here. We're not talking about when we go through the book of Daniel, we're not looking at what his predictions are concerning the future. No, we're looking at what Daniel was told is going to be what God's going to do. A statement of fact. Okay? Now, understanding prophecy. Here's where a lot of people get hung up, and this is where all the times a lot of different views erupt, is from understanding prophecy. Prophecy, can, here's what you need to understand, prophecy can have a near and far fulfillment. A near and far fulfillment. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, for instance, I gave you some scriptures there. We, won't, we don't necessarily need to turn to them. I will just tell you what they are. In Isaiah chapter 7, it's the very famous passage in which Isaiah gives the prophecy that a, that a woman or a virgin shall conceive and have a son and will call his name Emmanuel and upon his, you know, will be the government and, and all of that, okay? We know that because Matthew then quotes that when he gives his account of Jesus' birth, he quotes that very same verse in, in chapter 1, verse 23, and says, and the, and the virgin shall conceive, okay? Now, that prophecy has a near and far fulfillment. What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, if you look at chapter 7 of Isaiah, if you want to, you can turn there. You'll notice in the preceding verses before that, this sign or prophecy was given to a king by the name of Ahaz, and it was given by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah goes to him and says, you know, you don't need to worry about your enemies. They got some enemies at that point, primarily Syria, Samaria, okay? And you don't need to worry about them. In fact, ask God of a sign, and it will be proven to you through the sign. You just ask God for a sign. And the king, it's not because he's religious, it's because he doesn't believe, makes some sort of platitude and says, oh, I would never ask God for anything like that. Which ticks off Isaiah. If you read the passage, he gets upset and says, you know, who are you to, to, to fiddle with what God's saying, type thing. And then he says, Here, you, here's a sign. The virgin shall conceive... And as the prophecy goes on, it will say that those enemies that you're worried about will cease. They'll not be a problem anymore. So it's to an ungodly king a prophecy. You go over to chapter 8 in Isaiah, and you see that the prophet went to the prophetess, and she conceived, and she had a child, but they don't name the child Emmanuel. In fact, this is in chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. They name it a very long name that I can't tell you what it says in Hebrew, okay? And at that time, if you, if before this child reached an age of maturity, which is what the prophecy said, those enemies were no longer a problem to Judah. Now, that's the near fulfillment. Do you understand what I'm saying? The near fulfillment. The far fulfillment, because this child didn't grow up, it didn't have the government on his shoulders, it wasn't a wonderful cow. Do you understand? The far fulfillment we see in Bethlehem, several hundred years later, in a child born by what? A virgin. 
Okay, now you say, well, wait a minute now. What's his name's wife wasn't a virgin? Well, here's where some, how many of you remember the arguments? It used to be preachers would get up and they'd get all fired up about the Revised Standard Version because the Revised Standard Version said the woman shall conceive. How many remember that rather than virgin? And so we were going to toss that version out because it was a bad version, okay? Because it didn't say what Matthew said. And, well, here's the problem, though. The Hebrew word means two things. Woman, virgin. has a dual meaning. Okay? The prophecy has a dual meaning. Did you understand what I'm saying? The prophecy, and so when Matthew quotes it, he quotes it based upon the far fulfillment of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Prophecy has a near and far fulfillment. Now, you say, why are you bringing that issue up, George? Because some people get really messed up when it comes to the Scripture, especially with the book of Daniel that we're going to be studying here, and they really... uh, Get all worked up, like for instance, when we're going to study, we're going to we're going to we're going to read about a little horn, who does all these things, and the first part of the prophecy is talking about a guy by the name of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, and but the latter part of the prophecy isn't talking about him. It's talking about somebody future, and so some people say that the prophecy has already been fulfilled back with Antiochus. Part of it has, but part of it hasn't because there's a far fulfillment. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a far fulfillment. Now, so let's go on here. So prophecy has a, a near and far fulfillment. Let me just stop for a Everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, is everybody comprehending what I'm saying? Okay. We do not, here's the second thing you need to understand about prophecy. We do not understand all of the prophecies. We don't understand all of the prophecies. And I would go so far as to say, you and I don't even understand what is prophecy. How can you say that, George? Well, when you read through the Gospels, and you see the writer saying, and thus this prophecy was fulfilled. But when you go back and read it from the perspective of when it was written, you're like, how is that a prophecy? Like when he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Or when he was betrayed by a kiss. Those were all prophetic passages. But when you read what David's writing, if you're reading it from the perspective of David or the writer, you're like, well, I would have never known that was a prophecy. The reason why you don't know that is because the Holy Spirit revealed it to the apostles when they wrote what they wrote, that it was a prophecy. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. Not everything in the Scripture is necessarily known to us concerning prophecy. Okay, so for instance, let me give you an example. At the time of Jesus, they were all waiting for the Messiah to come. And in their estimation and in their interpretation of the Scripture... They saw the Messiah as a conquering hero who would come in and overthrow the Romans and get rid of them, right? That was definitely the thought of the disciples. Now Jesus begins to talk about suffering, and what's the reaction of the disciples to that? Are they accepting of that? Now, in fact, remember, Peter tries to stop him, and, 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 and Jesus makes that very harsh statement, Satan, get behind me. 
You don't know what you're doing? Here's the thing. They overlooked things in the Scripture because they didn't see it. So in their mind, they didn't understand Isaiah 53, which vividly describes what's going to happen in the crucifixion. And they didn't comprehend that as being the Messiah was going to suffer. So here's the thing. When we talk about prophecy, we don't necessarily understand all of the prophecies, but we do have a lot that will guide us. So let's go on here. Here's the other thing you're going to have to do. You must make a decision concerning the role of Israel in prophecy. Put a star by that one. Where you're going to end up understanding prophecy is going to be determined by what you believe about Israel. Bottom line. Folks, you've got to make a decision for yourself. What role does Israel play in these prophecies? Now, when we get towards the end of this introductory section over the next few weeks, I'm going to tell you the approach that I'm going to take. Okay? But you're going to have to determine in your mind how significant is Israel. Okay? How significant is Israel when we, we talk about the nature of prophecy? Alright? So let's talk about the methods of interpretation. The reason why there are so different, so many different views out there concerning the issue of prophecy is because there are so many different approaches to interpreting the Bible. So I'm just going to give you a couple of them. They're two of the oldest. The first is the allegorical method, and this is an ancient method of interpretation, the allegorical method. Uh, for instance, one of the church fathers' origin would be, he's probably the most prominent one who used this uh, method. But it's, it's an ancient form, so it's been there from the beginning. Now, what does it do? It views the text as an allegory with a spiritual meaning. So when I read something, like maybe the epistles or whatever, I'm not going to take what its literal meaning is. I'm going to look for an allegory. Does anybody know what an allegory is? It's kind of like a word picture. I'm going to look at it as a word picture of what's supposed to happen. Not its literal meaning. I'm going to look for its spiritual meaning. Now, this view often disregards the literal meaning of the text. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it often disregards the literal meaning of the text. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Anybody here can tell me what's the problem with your allegorical view? Anybody, got a, anybody know what the problem might be? That's exactly right, Denny. It could be interpreted in so many different ways because, okay, let's take, let's have, I, if I got Brad, I got Bruce, I got Denny and myself, and we all got four passages. And you separate us and said, okay, I want you to look for the spiritual meaning of the text. Don't look necessarily at what the literal meaning is. What, what's the allegory? What's the spiritual meaning? What do you think will happen? Four different opinions. That's exactly right. And see, the rules of this interpretation constantly change. Constantly change. So, for instance, I was talking with somebody, and we were talking about a view that we're going to mention here soon, probably in the next couple of weeks here, and, and it's like, how can they overlook what this text says about what's supposed to happen and say that it's already happened? Well, if you're not using a literal method, you're using an allegorical method, it doesn't really matter what the text says is going to happen. 
It's the allegory that's the most important thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it often disregards the literal meaning of the text. Now, here's the method that I use. It's the literal method. This is an ancient method of interpretation. So this is another ancient method. So this has been around from the very beginning. So you understand there's two camps of how we approach the scriptures. There's those who view it as an allegory. And then there are those who view it literally. Okay? That's where George is. All right? It's an ancient method. This method looks at the literal meaning of the text. What's the text saying? Okay, so here, let me just stop for a moment. I'll help you with this view for a point. When you read your Bible, it means what it meant when he wrote it to the people he wrote it to. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not something that, an, that a select elite few can understand. For instance, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you realize that the, that the New Testament, all of it was written in Greek, was written in what was known as Koine Greek? Okay, what's Koine Greek? Koine Greek is the language of the street. Okay, it's the language of the people. It was written in a common vernacular, slang, so to speak. All right? Versus, a lot of things are written in classical Greek. What is that? That's kind of like a higher language. Now, I'll give you a personal illustration. Some of you know that I'm half German. My mother is German. I was born in Berlin. My dad was an American soldier. And my relatives there, I have an aunt... She's my, my mom's only sister. And uh, she's from Berlin, but she lives now. She was in Hanover. She lives in, ha- in Hamburg. And when she speaks, she speaks in what's known as Hochdeutsch, or High German. Okay? And I said to her, well, why don't you speak in Berliner? Well, why don't you speak Berlin? She says, I don't want people to know where I'm from. Like, she's, she's ashamed of having a Berliner slang. Do, 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 you know, do you know what I'm saying? So... Like, for instance, when I speak German, I speak because I spoke German as a child. I, I talk to some Germans and they say, oh, you're from Berlin. How, how do I? It's the words and the slang I use. I learn a Berliner German. Not the Hochdeutsch, okay? He's not writing, they're not writing in, are you listening to me? A high Greek. They're writing in an average Greek for the average person to understand. We've got to understand that. Get it out of your brain that you've got to have somebody interpret it for you. That's not the way the scripture is. It's written for the common people to understand. So the literal method is the best method. Okay? The method looks at the literal meaning of the text. The text is interpreted upon its grammar and historical context. So we're going to look at what its historical cultural context is. And we're going to look at... What the grammar says when we talk about the literal method. Okay? So those are the two methods. Anybody got a question so far? Okay, let's talk about our approach. Last ten minutes here, we're going to talk about our approach. How are we going to approach this subject? First of all, recognize that good Christians have different views concerning prophecies. Okay? How many of you have friends who go to other denominational churches? I think everybody here should, right? Okay. There are other denominations. I was just in a meeting of the pastors here in town, and we were talking about somehow this issue came up, which is unusual for that meeting. 
And, and there are, uh, most of us were expressing one view, but there was another view there from a good brother who loves the Lord. And uh, here's the thing. You've got to recognize that there is probably somebody who's going to believe differently than you. That's okay. All right? You don't need to get upset with them. You don't need to write them off. Well, they don't have their understanding of the, of the rapture, right? You know, come on. Do you know what I'm saying? Come on. They can have a differing view during this. The main issue is whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ is literally going to come back bodily. That's the main issue. If they don't believe that Jesus Christ is literally going to come back, or they say something like this, this is a, this is a viewpoint that's in our area now, that he already has come back, then you've got to write those guys, because that's heresy. You understand what I'm saying? The issue of truth is, is that he's coming back. If there's a viewpoint that says he's already come back, that's a heretical viewpoint. If they differ on the issue of whether or not there's going to be a kingdom or not a kingdom, whether or not there's going to be a rapture or a rapture, what, this, what, the, what the tribulation means or whatever, you know what, you can live with that. They're deceived. You just need to pray that their eyes open up. And maybe you can quietly help them later on. But they're okay as long as they believe that Jesus is coming back. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, and here, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from history. There was a, uh, in about 150 AD, there was a church father by the name of Justin Martyr. He was, I think, either a disciple of the Apostle John or a disciple of a disciple of the Apostle John. Okay? And here's what he said. He believed in a premillennial return of Christ. What does that mean? He believes that Jesus was going to literally come back and establish a thousand-year reign. Which, by the way, was the prominent view in the church for the first 300 years. Okay? He said that there are some who believe otherwise and that the kingdom is now. You should show grace to them. Wow, that's pretty generous of him. Sounds like a generous guy. No, the same guy would vehemently attack and anathematize or say to hell with anybody who believed anything different concerning the person of Jesus Christ. But when it came to eschatology, he recognized that it's possible for a Christian to maybe hold a different view, and that's okay. That's the point I want you to see. The, the, the approach we need to take is, okay, you need to, as we're going to determine what we believe here or what you believe, is be open to the fact that somebody else maybe doesn't believe what you believe. Okay? The issue, though, is whether or not they believe in what? Jesus coming back bodily. Okay? Let's go on. So we want to show grace. Here's the next one. Believers hold, here's the thing you've got to realize, believers hold differing views about the millennium, the tribulation, and the rapture. All three of those. You're going to find people who hold differing views about the millennium. What do you mean by that, George? Well, premillennial position is, is that uh, Jesus will come and establish a thousand-year reign. Postmillennial position is, is that the church will usher in the kingdom, all right, and that Jesus will return after the millennium. An amillennial position is, is that we're usher in the kingdom and that Jesus is coming back and there's not going to be a kingdom, but he'll come back. Okay, we'll talk about that later. The tribulation, 
There are some who believe that the tribulation is a literal seven-year period of time in which the, the, the earth will endure the wrath of God poured out on it. That's what I believe. Now, there are some who believe that it's allegorical, and it was representative of what Israel went through in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. And I say allegorical because when you read the text in Revelation, there's no way all of that has happened. So they look at it as representative of God's wrath being poured out on Israel or the temple or whatever. All right. There are some who believe there is no tribulation. There are some who believe that all of the suffering that we're enduring right now is the tribulation. Okay, so there's different views out there. We're going to talk about them. You have to make your decision. How you make your decision is what does the scripture tell you? And what method of interpretation are you using? What's the scripture tell you? What method of interpretation? Now, there's different views on the rapture. Do you, do you realize there are a lot of views on the rapture? There's the pre-trib, which is where most folks are at. There is the mid-trib which is that it's somewhere in the middle, like in the middle of it. There is the post-trib, that all Christians will go through the rapture. I mean, excuse me, all the tribulation. And so it will happen at the end of the rapture, just right before he comes back. There is the what's now becoming a very, maybe you've heard of this position before. It's becoming very prominent now, very widespread. It, it, it really came out about 20 years ago, the pre-wrath rapture of the church. How many of you have heard that before? It is a pre-wrath view in which we will, Christians will endure part of the tribulation, but they will not endure the wrath of God being poured out. Okay? So they'll, again, it's a form of the mid-trib. It actually takes all three views, tries to reconcile them all, and comes up with a, what is known as a, um, a pre-wrath view. Alright? Then there's the no-trib view. There isn't going to be any tribulation. Alright? So what you need to do is recognize that believers, are going to hold to different views. You've got to recognize that believers hold different views. Okay, so let me give you some definition of terms that we're going to talk about from here on out. When we talk about from here on out, when I give you this study, when I mention the millennium, here's what the millennium is. The millennium is a thousand-year period of peace in the kingdom of God, which is ruled by Jesus Christ. You can add that on if you want to. It's a literal thousand years of peace. The world has never known this. It is when King Jesus himself comes back and rules for a thousand years. That's what, when I use the term millennium, that's what it's going to mean from this study on. Alright? When we talk about the tribulation, it refers to a seven year period in which God's wrath is poured out. I believe, and what's going to be coming out of me through this study is, is that the tribulation is a literal seven-year period. Seven years. It's Daniel's 70th week. If you want to write that down somewhere, Daniel's 70th week. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 9 of Daniel. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's a literal seven-year period. Okay, Why do I say that? Because if I take the literal meaning of the text, either in Daniel or the book of Revelation, it's seven years. It's seven years. And when I talk about the rapture, the rapture is the church meeting Jesus Christ in the air at his second coming. 
Now, some of you are going to say, well, you mean it's the same time as the second? No, no. It's, it's with reference to all of the events of the second coming is what I'm talking about. The events of the second coming. Because the tribulation is an event connected with the second coming. All right? All I'm saying is, is that the rapture, when I talk about it, I'm referring to the church being taken. Now, when we get towards the end of the study, you're going to see that I'm going to assume the pre-tribulational view. That's what we're going to, we're going to be talking about here. All right? Okay. Next week, we're going to get into what the millennium, the views of the millennium are and the second coming together. So next week, we're going to do that.